This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast series on cardiac disease in a pregnant woman. My name is Julie Arafe, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partners, Suzanne Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. The topic for discussion today is peripartum cardiomyopathy. Let's start with a patient. We have a 33-year-old Gravita 1 with dichorionic twin pregnancy at 34 and 3 sevenths weeks that presents to triage. She's complaining of shortness of breath. She has had an uncomplicated prenatal course to date, no significant medical or surgical history. Her current vital signs are blood pressure 151 over 82, pulse 120, respiratory rate 24, and oxygen saturation of 95%. First is an issue of, of recognition. How does a patient with cardiomyopathy typically present? Common complaints include shortness of breath, swelling, mainly in the lower extremities, palpitations or regular heart rate, fatigue, rapid heart rate, and the patient may have a non-productive cough. Some of the physical signs that would make you suspect cardiomyopathy include hypertension, leg or pedal edema, irregular heart rate or atrial fibrillation, S3 or S4 heart sounds, or if you're not very familiar with how an S3 or S4 sounds, you would have an unusual heart sound when you auscultate the chest. And respiratory distress. Remember, respiratory distress can be use of accessory muscles for respiration. It may also be in the diction of the way a person talks. They may not be able to complete a sentence without taking a breath. And it can also be evident looking at their vital signs. Yeah. And you know, I love to talk about vital signs. So I want to chime in here and and kind of go back to that case that we just presented and look at the patient's vital signs and to see which one of the vital signs are more than one that are abnormal. And that's important with peripartum cardiomyopathy is early recognition of abnormal vital signs as a clinical component. Also important is looking at trends in vital signs. So if I had this patient as a nurse, I would look at her prenatal history, look at what her vital signs had been trending during her prenatal history, if that is available, and hopefully it is. And then I would look at what her current vital signs are. Then once I identified any abnormal vital signs, my frequency of assessment of vital signs would increase. So let's look back at this patient and see what those vital signs were that were abnormal. 
So we had a blood pressure of 151 over 82. We know that that is an unusually high uh, systolic uh, blood pressure. And the diastolic is starting to creep up there as well. So remembering back to our Vital Signs or Vital podcast, 151 would reflect more of the stroke volume. And that is definitely um, one of the clinical uh, vital sign characteristics for a peripartum cardiomyopathy is that their blood pressure can be increased. But especially that systolic number um, over the diastolic increase. Heart rate can also be increased. And in our patient uh, scenario that we just presented, her heart rate was 120. Um, a resting heart rate of 120 is always abnormal. So even if the patient were having some contractions, that would still be abnormal. And so that's an early recognition criteria, an early warning sign of maternal compromise that would require physician present at, at the bedside for um, further assessment and diagnosis. Respiratory rate also is usually increased in these patients. And in our patient scenario, her respiratory rate was 24. Again, that is a high respiratory rate, even though it's not an early warning sign of maternal compromise, waiting until her respiratory rate was over 30 breaths per minute would be an extreme respiratory uh, distress situation. So early, recogni uh, early recognition of a respiratory rate at 24 is still um, high, and we want to recognize that as being high. And then another parameter in their vital signs that may be abnormal would be her oxygen saturation. In this scenario, her patient, uh, our patient had oxygen saturation of 95%, which is decreased. It's under that cutoff range of 96%. It is also an early warning sign of maternal compromise requiring physician presence at the bedside for diagnosis. And then lastly, I want to highlight in this patient the pulse pressure. And if you remember back, pulse pressure is a component of the blood pressure where you take the systolic blood pressure, subtract the diastolic blood pressure, and that reflects, again, stroke volume or approximately half of the stroke volume. In this patient, she has an increased pulse pressure of 69. Now, that is a, a high number um, high would be considered 65 to 70 millimeters of mercury difference. And again, if you multiplied 69 by two, you would see that her stroke volume would then be in the 130s range, the 140s, and that would be a high stroke volume for this patient. Stephanie, uh, why don't you uh, start talking about uh, some more of the signs and symptoms and other possibilities with a patient that may present with um, some of the vital signs that we've been discussing or some of the other physical characteristics of cardiomyopathy. Sure. Now, you guys have probably already put cardiomyopathy on the differential for this patient's underlying diagnosis, but we gave you a big hint that we're talking about cardiomyopathy today. So obviously, cardiomyopathy goes right to the top of the list. But if you just look at this, how this patient presented with the vital signs that, that she presented with, there's a lot of different things that could be besides cardiomyopathy we want to stress that cardiomyopathy really needs to be on the differential when you have a patient who presents this way. Um, you may think you've never taken care of a patient with it, but or you may not have, but it is 
actually not terribly rare. It's the number three cause of maternal death in the United States. That means about one out of eight maternal deaths is due to cardiomyopathy. And those numbers are steadily increasing. Every time the CDC releases information about causes of maternal mortality, uh, cardiomyopathy seems to be uh, rising and rising and rising. So what else could this patient have? Well, she could have a pulmonary embolism. She could have an underlying pneumonia. She Often these patients are labeled as being anxious. Well, anxiety by itself is not going to cause all of these issues for the vast majority of patients. And anxiety should be, you know, you should be really hesitant to make that diagnosis until you've done a very thorough evaluation of your patient um, to rule out other underlying causes like cardiomyopathy or PE. Many times patients are in fact anxious, but it's not the cause, it's the result. So as they get hypoxemic, as they get you know, progressively short of breath, their anxiety rises and rises and rises, but it's not the reason for their shortness of breath and their uh, tachycardia and tachypnea. It's the result of. Now, hypertensive disorders, gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, we find that these are often, um, patients are often misdiagnosed with preeclampsia or gestational hypertension when they have, in fact, cardiomyopathy. And, you know, it, on the flip side, sometimes what'll happen is a patient will have preeclampsia. She may get an echo because she developed pulmonary edema and will be diagnosed with decreased contractility or a decreased ejection fraction and get labeled as cardiomyopathy, but that's not actually the problem. The problem is something else uh, that's, that you know can lead to hypertension. And lastly, um, asthma. Any new onset asthma in a pregnant woman should raise alarm flags. I mean, postpartum or pregnant, if you've got a new diagnosis of asthma in a patient who does not have a history, um, I would be very, very cautious about making that diagnosis unless there's a very extensive workup done because those patients are very likely to have some underlying pathology like or some underlying cardiac pathology like peripartum cardiomyopathy. Yeah, I want to go back, uh, Stephanie, and ask you, about how to differentiate peripartum cardiomyopathy from preeclampsia. I uh, remember back in the day, again, when we did a lot of Swan-Gans catheters and we would um, have a, you know, a hypertensive patient who would end up getting a Swan and they would have decreased contractility values. Her left ventricular, left ventricular stroke work index would be decreased. And, and, you know, we didn't, weren't doing a, a lot of echocardiograms back then. And now obviously that's taken the place of, uh, doing invasive hemodynamic monitoring, but, you know, how do you differentiate these two? Because if you can have hypertension and possibly pulmonary edema, um, and tachycardia, things of that nature that, that mimic uh, a gestational or a preeclamptic clinical picture, how do you differentiate them? Yeah, so that's a really good question. You know, it's not always real easy to differentiate between cardiomyopathy and preeclampsia, but first let's start with, does the patient meet criteria for preeclampsia or not? Because if she meets criteria for preeclampsia, then that certainly has to be on the differential as a possibility. And it's more common for sure than cardiomyopathy. But sometimes, you know, you can have a patient who has hypertension, but maybe doesn't meet the other clinical criteria for preeclampsia, no proteinuria, labs are normal, et cetera, but maybe has pulmonary edema. So you could label her as gestational hypertension with pulmonary edema, or even call her preeclampsia with severe features. But I would be very suspicious that that patient could have an underlying cardiomyopathy that explains everything. 
Now, the other thing to consider are the labs because preeclampsia, you know, we, we know the lab patterns that we see with uh, patients with preeclampsia with severe features and, and even without severe features. So like the, the hematocrit, for example, so patients with preeclampsia tend to get hemoconcentrated. So their hematocrits tend to increase. Whereas with peripartum cardiomyopathy, with all the increased volume that you see, because the heart is failing, you, you might expect their hematocrit to be lower, but not necessarily hemoconcentrated and, and elevated. Platelet counts really shouldn't be affected that much by cardiomyopathy, but it's typical for them to be lower uh, in a preeclamptic patient. Now, liver function tests similarly are not typically abnormal in a cardiomyopathy patient, and they may or may not be abnormal in preeclampsia. Now, you might see some abnormal liver function tests in a patient who has maybe some significant right heart failure that leads to some liver congestion. And then lastly, the creatinine. So in patients with preeclampsia, that hemoconcentration and that decreased renal flow leads to almost a pre-renal injury. So you end up with increasing creatinine levels that you typically don't see from cardiomyopathy unless their cardiac output is so impacted that they uh, are really diminishing flow to the kidneys and and then you'll see the creatinine increase. So you can use a combination of the lab findings and their clinical symptoms to decide you know, could this be peripartum cardiomyopathy or just preeclampsia? But again, you're not going to diagnose cardiomyopathy if you don't do the echocardiogram. You really have to consider the possibility that they might have it in order to do additional workup. So why don't you then go into how cardiomyopathy is actually diagnosed? Sure. So it's important to recognize that peripartum cardiomyopathy is actually a dilated cardiomyopathy. So there's really, you know, two kinds of cardiomyopathies, those where you end up with systolic dysfunction and those where you have diastolic dysfunction. And these dilated cardiomyopathies like peripartum cardiomyopathy are systolic dysfunction. So the muscle becomes weak, it doesn't contract very well, and so and it thins out. And so the ventricle becomes enlarged, a very large ventricle with a loosely weak functioning muscle. But diastolic dysfunction is completely different. And those you'll, this you'll see in patients that have like obesity and hypertension, diabetes, where that cardiac muscle is pumping extra hard, has to work extra hard against all these, all this resistance and all this, you know, whatever that makes that muscle work really hard. And over a period of years, that muscle is going to get thicker and thicker and thicker. And so the, the ventricular space is actually decreased and it's smaller and can hold less fluid because the muscle has thickened and is taking up the space. So with systolic dysfunction, you're going to see a dilated weak, a dilated ventricle and a weakly functioning muscle. And what that looks like on ultrasound or on echocardiogram is a decreased ejection fraction of less than 40 to 45%. Shortening fraction is another way of kind of looking at contractility, and that'll be less than 30%. And then the size of the ventricle itself, so a left ventricular end diastolic volume of over two and a half centimeters per meter squared. Now, those are the echocardiogram criteria, but you have those criteria, and to make the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy in particular, you have to have some other criteria as well. And that includes heart failure that develops within the last month of pregnancy or five months postpartum without any other identifiable cause for heart failure and no history of cardiac disease before the pregnancy. And this is really, really important because it's important to know that you have 
you know, to call it peripartum cardiomyopathy, you've basically ruled out everything else. This is not a patient who has known hypertensive cardiomyopathy or a patient who has a history of drug use causing heart failure or whatever it may be. This is, there's no other explanation and you have these ultrasound findings on echocardiogram. So you've talked about the echocardiogram. What are the other components of an initial evaluation for this patient? Yeah, so echo is really, really important because it is actually the only way that you can diagnose peripartum cardiomyopathy. There's no other way to do it, but you have to suspect it. And some other initial evaluation tools that we have are, are a chest X-ray. So when you do a chest X-ray on a patient, you know, that you think might have cardiomyopathy, you're often evaluating shortness of breath. And, you know, that can be due to a whole bunch of different things. So a chest X-ray is typically performed. And on chest X-ray, you're going to see, you know, bi-basilar infiltrates and findings that are consistent with pulmonary edema. But it's typical for these x-rays to show cardiomegaly. And that's really common that they describe cardiomegaly, but you cannot diagnose true cardiomegaly from a chest x-ray in a pregnant woman. You know, these patients are often not properly positioned. The diaphragm is pressing up and can make the heart look enlarged when it's not necessarily abnormal. Um, the other really important tool that we have is, is BNP, B-type natriuretic peptide. And this is a protein that is released as the ventricle walls get stretched and um, the pressure in the ventricle increases. Now, the good news with this one is that you can still use normal values. So in other words, if you think a patient has heart failure and you are, but you're not sure and you order a BNP and it's normal, in other words, under 100, then you've essentially ruled out an overdistended ventricle and ruled out heart failure. On the flip side, if it's elevated, then I would be very suspicious that this patient has heart failure, and I would certainly want to do the next step, which would be an echocardiogram. Yeah, I like this idea of diagnosis of exclusion and that rule in diagnosing cardiomyopathy, because we have certainly seen other conditions that decrease ejection fraction or um, cardiac output. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see patients get labeled with the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy because they happen to have a decreased ejection fraction when an echo is performed for whatever reason while they're pregnant. So like a typical situation, maybe a patient who's septic or in septic shock, and she's in the intensive care unit, an echocardiogram is done, she's pregnant, and she has a decreased ejection fraction, so they label her as peripartum cardiomyopathy. But this patient does not meet the criteria for peripartum cardiomyopathy simply because there is another potential explanation. Uh, preeclampsia is another example of that. I mean, if you've got a patient with pulmonary edema and significant uh, hypertension, it can mimic, a de- you know, it can cause a decreased ejection fraction and mimic some of the same things that you're going to see with cardiomyopathy and especially post-cardiac arrest. Now, it's, it's certainly possible that the patient arrested because of a cardiomyopathy, But it makes sense that if you've got a patient who had cardiac arrest and then you do an echo on her, that there's going to be some decreased performance of that cardiac muscle. And so I I don't want you to be afraid to consider the possibility or saying, oh, she can't possibly have cardiomyopathy, quite the opposite. We want you to consider the possibility and work the patient up, but with the caveat that every decreased ejection fraction does not equal peripartum cardiomyopathy. Well, that concludes today's discussion. Tune in again for part two of this episode where we talk about management of the patient. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. 
You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, or on Twitter at OB Critical Care. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.